So hello, everyone. This is Mike Grandinetti, and really excited to bring you this new episode of my Disruptive Innovation Podcast. This is a, a podcast that celebrates all things innovation, and today we're going to talk about something that we've not in any way come close to discussing before, which is innovation within the U.S. military. And I think we've got a really great discussion ahead of us. I've got two awesome guests. So Warren Katz, who's sitting across from me here in the studio on Newberry Street in Boston, is the managing director of the Techstars U.S. Air Force Accelerator that is based here in Boston. And they are now up and running with their third cohort as of this week. He's just winding down after a full day of mentor madness. Um, so he's coming here after, I'm sure, a very exciting day. And on the phone, we have U.S. Air Force Captain Steve Lauver. Steve is both an active duty U.S. Air Force pilot, but he's also program manager of the AFWORKS program. And we will be explaining in great detail exactly what the AFWORKS program means and how it connects to military innovation and the Techstars U.S. Air Force Accelerator. So welcome, gentlemen. And, and yeah, so, wonderful being here. Thanks. Steve, thanks for taking time, Stephen. So let me just set the stage real quickly. It's very appropriate that we're having this discussion on President's Day here in Boston, sort of the cradle of the American Revolution, the, uh, the famous ride of Paul Revere and the shot heard around the world at the North Bridge in Concord. So if we think back to the days of the American Revolution under the leadership of General George Washington, uh, we had this ragtag militia the Continental Army, underfunded, under-resourced. Um, and they took on, at the time, the world's greatest superpower, the United Kingdom. And using rather unorthodox techniques, they won freedom for the United States of America. And from that point in time, as the U.S. military grew, of course, conditions on the ground continued to change and the needs of our military continued to evolve. If we think about World War II, it was about massive force. We think about Operation Overlord, or what was more commonly known as D-Day, and what it took to, to launch something of that nature. But as we sit here in 2020, it's a completely different world order. And we're now all about agility. We're all about responsiveness and about you know, being able to get to many different theaters in, in almost real time. So this is a new world order. And as a result, military is, is no longer able to do things that they've always done. So with that, let's talk about some of the remarkable breakthroughs that are happening today with the U.S. Air Force. But as we conclude this program, we're going to talk about how this is actually flowing into all of the other branches of military. So Warren, so good to have you here. Now My that pleasure. you're three years into your, your newest role, Take us through your background a little bit. How did you get here? Obviously, engineer, and you, you've had some experience as a military contractor yourself. So take us through your history, if you would. Sure thing. So uh, thanks thanks a lot, Mike. Great to be here. Um, so I am an engineer by training. I went to MIT. I got a couple of degrees, late 80s. And then uh, at that time, I um, uh, my first job out of college was working for a defense contractor here in Cambridge, a company called Bolt, Baranek & Newman, otherwise known as BBN, a very uh, venerable uh, old classic uh, defense contractor here, working on the most exotic uh, technologies that that were out there. Uh, BBN uh, counts DARPA as its uh, main uh, 
main customer, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. So as a young kid out of college, it was a dream job. And uh, I worked on this um, this marvelous new simulation technology, which gave birth to um, a new kind of uh, of networking technology for connecting large numbers of simulations together. It gave birth to online games and the internet. Um, and one thing I learned uh, when I was working at BBN, their business model, and I didn't know anything about business models when I when I was in college, and I didn't really care that much. I was wanted, wanted to work on cool cool stuff, so uh, I went to work with this defense contractor. Uh, we got paid by the hour to make stuff. So it was sort of an hourly uh, labor contracting business, much like you'd pay a plumber by the hour, or electrician by the hour. And I thought that was okay. Um, but uh, after uh, a couple of years, I kind of realized that if you wanted to be in business and grow a big business fast, you can't really be in the hourly labor business. Uh, and uh, one could, um, could see that Wall Street didn't really uh, value hourly labor businesses very highly. Uh, the companies that were valued very highly and could grow fast were companies that were in the product business. Uh, and especially at that time in the software business, because it was easier to produce software um, than it was to produce hardware. So after about uh, three years working for this defense contractor in this new exotic technology area, I decided to leave uh, with a partner, with a friend of mine, and we uh, founded a company called uh, Mock Technologies. This was in 1990. And uh, we swore that we were going to be a product company, not a services company. Uh, however, at the same time, we were um, accustomed to doing this labor contracting business with the Department of Defense. And given the choice between uh, going to a venture capitalist and giving up pieces of equity in our company to a venture capitalist, or going to the Department of Defense and just getting a non-dilutive capital through one of their small business programs, we opted for uh, funding our company through the small business program. So we grew Mock Technologies. We we developed our commercial off-the-shelf products. Uh, the, the military calls them COTS products, C-O-T-S, com commercial off-the-shelf. And uh, we started selling them. Uh, these were uh, simulation software products. They were finished. They did the job. And we uh, were selling them both inside the uh, United States Department of Defense to to other governments around the world, to, to private industry, to uh, uh, trying to break into the video game market. And uh, what we discovered fairly quickly, however, is uh, despite the fact that we had finished products ready to go uh, to customers that might need or want them, if those customers themselves were paid by the hour to make things, they had no motivation to, to buy an off-the-shelf product because they could get their customers, the, the original you know, Department of Defense, to, to pay them by the hour to remake things over and over and over again. And when I discovered this, I was incensed as I thought, how, how can these uh, perverse incentive structures actually exist in our Department of Defense? And I, I went on a tirade of acquisition reform for some number of years trying to, um, you know, to uh, uh, reverse this uh, incentive structure problem uh, such that large defense contractors were actually rewarded for saving money and saving time and buying existing off-the-shelf products. Um, beat my head against that wall for about 15, 20 years, and finally uh, gave up. Um, the company was still doing very well because we found that uh, smaller defense contractors and smaller projects who didn't have the money to replicate everything that we made were forced to buy from us. So we still had a pretty good business, but there was a, a glass ceiling that we could not grow beyond uh, unless we went completely into the non-military business. So after about um, uh, 15, 16 years, I wound up uh, selling the company. I wound up giving up because I, I wasn't really 
changing the buying practices of the U.S. Department of Defense, despite the fact that the very highest level of, of, um, of military officers and, and acquisition professionals agreed that the incentive structure was um, not uh, conducive to, to, to creating the best products fast and delivering them to the warfighter. Fascinating. So I sold yeah. the company, had a good exit, uh, and after a couple of years, uh, retired. I became uh, an angel investor here in the Boston ecosystem, and I became known as the government guy. If uh, anybody needs to fund their startup company with, uh, with, with government contracts, they would find their way to my doorstep. I uh, taught classes at the Techstars program here in Boston, the regular Boston program, and, and how to do SBIRs, and, and uh, that went along fine. And then all of a sudden, uh, one day, I get, uh, I get an email from a buddy of mine, uh, a guy named uh, Brad Feld, who's a, a, a famous venture capital, capitalist in Boulder, Colorado, said, hey, the Air Force just reached out to Techstars asking us to set up an accelerator for them. And uh, we don't know how to deal with these guys. Hey, Warren, can you help us, you know, talk to these guys, you talk their language, you can help us close this deal. So I did. I got involved at that time, and I helped uh, Techstars and the Air Force negotiate uh, the deal for operating an accelerator on behalf of the Air Force. And the real reason why I did it, and, I, and uh, at, the, at the end as the deal was closing, uh, they asked me if I would run it, and I said yes. And the reason why I did was because uh, the people I was um, um, interacting with on the Air Force side, they understood this problem, that uh, startup companies didn't want to work with the Department of Defense, that the business model was too foreign. Uh, that this uh, this cost, you know, reimbursable labor model was actually disincentivizing the use of commercial products, and uh, their goals uh, aligned with my original goals that I that I had uh, problems with when I was running my company, and that uh, they wanted to reach out uh, to the community of 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 tr non traditional startup companies that, in theory, would like to work with the Department of Defense, but in practice don't because the bureaucracy was too tough. And, and after a while, the, the Department of Defense wouldn't buy their products anyway if some large defense contractor could replicate it for 100 times the price. Uh, and so uh, those were the kind of the, the reasons why I took the job and that uh, the, the, this particular group at AFWorks of the Air Force was uh, also aligned with, uh, with my desire to fix this problem. So that's, that's how we get to today. That's great. So what, talk about destiny. I mean, this is something, as you said, you, you, you're funding a two-decade you know, battle. Yep to try to get things the right way. And as you said, even though everyone was aware that it was broken, nothing could be done, right? And so, Steve, this brings us to you now. So th there's two sides to this equation. And so if you would be so kind, just take us through your background a little bit, and then we'll get to, you know, when did the U.S. Air Force decide to solicit tech stars to help them build an accelerator? But let's, let's take one thing at a time. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, of course. And again, thanks so much for having me on the uh, on the show. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm an Air Force captain named Steve Lover. Um, I actually graduated from the Air Force Academy in 2011 with an aeronautical engineering degree. Um, right out of the academy, I married my high school sweetheart. Uh, her name's Lauren. Um, we've since had a baby girl who's now three years old. I've been together going on 14, wow, 14 years. Um, after that, I went to pilot training in Texas at an Air Force base called Shepard, um, where I flew the T-6 and the T-38. Now, everyone who goes on to fly an Air Force aircraft has to fly the T-6 first, and then from there you branch off to either the T-1 if you're going to go to heavier aircraft or T-38 if you're going to go to non-traditional or, or some of the pointier aircraft. Um, 2013, I graduated from pilot training and went over to Hilbertfield, Florida, where I flew an aircraft for a number of years called the U-28 with Air Force Special Operations Command. 
Um, and during that time, all captains at some point in the Air Force have to go to this program called Squadron Officer School. And this is a professional education course for captains who are trying to learn about how the broader Air Force works, try to mingle a little bit with the other career fields, and give you a little bit more of a, a broad perspective on what the Air Force is doing. Um, but one of the programs within that, that broader SOS, is what we call it, program, was called a think tank. Uh, and the commandant of the school, one-star general, was a General Goodfellow at the time, he puts out there a problem and says, anyone who has a solution to this problem can throw in a solution this night, right? And we'll turn around the next day, and then we'll assemble teams based on those reports or those, those papers that you write to try to spend the next several weeks tackling that problem. And for us, it was to create an innovation program for the Air Force. Um, I got to meet some absolutely brilliant people, uh, two of which I work with every day still, uh, Chris Benson and Austin DeLorme, are absolutely just geniuses. Um, but we worked together to come up with this concept for how do we work with um, a startup technology accelerator to get some of the best, uh, best technologies we possibly can into the hands of the warfighter. Um, from 2016 on, we kept working. We said, hey, we're done with this squadron officer school program, but I really think there's something there. Um, General Goodfellow became a really great proponent for us, and we kind of became a startup within the Air Force. So we pursued for about a year trying to get funding uh, and billets, so giving us the ability to formally work on this program, um, and really the, the top cover and blessing that we needed to go try this experiment. And ultimately we did. So in 2017, I moved up to D.C., uh, where I'm now the Director of Technology Accelerators at AFWorks. We're on our third year of this program, and actually accelerators have started to spring up throughout the Air Force and across the broader DoD as well. And uh, yeah, it's really great to be here. That's great. So before we dig into what will become the alphabet soup of this discussion, and we, and you describe AFWorks in more detail, there was one very interesting formative experience that uh, I'd like you to describe because there's something that I would not have expected as an active duty, you know, member of the U.S. military, someone who's actually in flight training. Um, you actually helped start up a startup as you were, you know, um, you know, fulfilling your, you know. A, taking your military career to the next level. So can you talk about that experience? Because that's a pretty unique thing to me. Yeah, of course. You know, it's funny, whenever people bring this up, I, I used to cringe a little bit. And this might be an experience that any startup founder who's had a, a failed startup may have. Um, and that's like, well, I got to talk about a failure I had. But it actually was formative for me. And, and honestly, one of the reasons that I think I've been able to keep up with the punches in this current job, right, where it's really beneficial to be able to have that empathy with a startup founder. But yeah, I had a bunch of buddies in college who we were very passionate about entrepreneurship and venture. Uh, we made an organization called the Venture Capital Society at the school. And I think um, none of us knew what we were talking about, but at least it was a way that we could convene this group of people together to, to do something that we liked. Um, once I graduated from the academy, I actually tried my hand uh, at a startup. So we made a company called Notify Incorporated. And we kind of followed the playbook of like, oh, well, we should incorporate in Delaware and we should do X, Y, and Z. And we were just figuring out as we go. But our vision was to, uh, in a way, reorganize content on the web based on crowdsourcing, which turns out is a very big problem. Uh, but one of the big lessons there was you know, during the course of, of going to pilot training and assembling a team, kind of these, these two parallel tracks, right? Learning to do my military job, but also raising some funding and executing a startup, it's very difficult to split your consciousness between both. I'm glad that I did because I learned so much from it, but ultimately we, we ended up failing as a startup and then keeping all those lessons and feeding them back into this broader uh, movement, I'll call it, within the Air Force of how do we work with startups and venture better. That's great. So when I think about both Warren's story and your story, it's almost destiny, right? Here you are taking on this rather unorthodox, you know, dual role, right? And, you know, clearly exhibiting a passion for startups as, as a cadet. 
as you matriculate through the Air Force Academy. And Warren, of course, very quickly becoming troubled by what he sees as perverse incentives and, and you know, launching an initiative to try to reverse that. So, so I can already understand how when the two of you met, there was this extraordinary, you know, gravitational pull that brought you together. But obviously, it's not just the two of you, right? It's, it's, it's a much broader ecosystem. So in the very, so maybe, Stevie, if you could just describe very high level what AFWorks is intended to do. Yeah, of course. Of course. And also, I want to clarify, too. So I'm a director of one of the capabilities within AFWorks, but we yeah. actually have a, an overall director for the program, which is Dr. Brian Mao. And then we actually have a chain of command that ultimately gets up to the vice chief of staff of the Air Force. So okay. I just want to clarify that one piece. But yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. jump right in. So first off, AFWorks, you know, it's A-F-W-E-R-X, Air Force Works, uh, is an Air Force organization. And I lead with that because the name sometimes leads people to wonder, are we a company or a nonprofit or something else entirely? We are an Air Force organization that was established in 2017 by the Secretary of the Air Force, and we report through the Air Force headquarters, ultimately up to the Vice Chief of Staff. Um, and I think a good starting point is the AFWorks mission. So that is that we are a fusion of capabilities who connects innovators and accelerates results for Air Force culture and technology. And the first thing you'll notice about that is that it's fairly broad, and that's actually by design. Because to me, and this is Steve talking, not necessarily AFWorks as a whole, um, AFWorks is an Air Force experiment to provide airmen, so the men and women in the Air Force, the time, resources, and top cover to conduct Air Force experiments. Right? Anyone in a large organization, government or otherwise, can likely empathize with this, this paradox, this idea that you have great ideas uh, on how to make your organization or your mission 2x or 5x or 10x better. But if you lose focus on your operational mission, the things you're doing day to day, you risk failure. Right? And so the beauty of having a broad mandate is that when we see a really challenging problem, we'll talk a little bit about you know, Air Force entrepreneurs, these folks who see a nasty problem and go off to solve it. They're passionate about it. But when we see one of those problems, we have the freedom to go after it. And we'll talk about a few of the programs within AFWorks, again, a fusion of capabilities. So I won't go into too much detail there. But I will say that those programs, all of the programs under the AFWorks umbrella, tend to fall into two major buckets. About half of them are focused inward on creating a culture of innovation. So there's programs like the SPARK program, which is, uh, we call it a, a semi-autonomous, decentralized network of Air Force innovators across the world. Um, right now, I believe we have over 60 bases that opted to create their own SPARK cells, and that number grows every month. Um, it's led by a brilliant guy you would love to talk to. Him. His name's Tony Perez, um, major in the Air Force, who I think you'd, you'd probably love to have on your show. But um, So that's the inward piece, right? How do we create this growth mindset these airmen entrepreneurs who are both equipped and have the cultural imperative to solve really big problems. And then the second half is outward facing. How do we get the brightest minds in the entire world to want to and be able to work with us? And we have some of the most challenging and interesting and important problems out there. And part of our hypothesis is, um, which I think we've largely validated in recent years, is that if we lower the barriers to working with the Air Force, communicate our problems effectively to founders, and align the incentives in such a way that it makes um, economic sense to work with us, then brilliant innovators will choose to do so. I know that was a long way to, but that is AFWorks in a nutshell. All right. And we're going to dig in deeply, but I want to now turn to Warren, right? So Warren just shared his 20-year career, and now he gets this he gets this call from a legendary guy in our world, Brad Fell, to uh, just one of the most thoughtful, you know, entrepreneurs, visionaries, accelerator founders of, that, that you can imagine. And he hands Warren this lead 
U.S. Air Force. We're in how skeptical were you? Because, you know, as Steve talks, right, this is all so novel to me to hear about airmen entrepreneurs and to hear about experiments within the military. So were, when you first got this, were you aware that these changes were happening within the Air Force or was this all new to you? No, and actually, I, I, I can't really honestly say that um, this, this was a widespread change in the Air Force. It was not. Uh, very often, you know, throughout my career, I've always uh, sporadically run into an occasional, um, you know, innovator inside the DOD that also would decry the same problem that, that I was decrying from the outside, which was, you know, we can't seem to get out of our own way. You know, there's great commercial products sitting there on the shelf and, and, and airmen and, and soldiers can't use them because the bureaucracy stands in the way of just very, very rapid adoption of these latest and greatest uh, items. So the fact that um, the Air Force was reaching out to Techstars was a, a novelty. It was unusual. It was an anomaly, actually. Um, but I immediately got on the phone with uh, who they were calling the four captains of the apocalypse at the time. There were these four captains that were in that uh, squadron officer school that Steve uh, mentioned. And these are all, I'll, I'll call them kids because they're all half my age, uh, pretty much. And uh, <laughs> these are, these are you, know, you know, kids who didn't have uh, a vested interest in the bureaucracy. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were simply looking out for themselves and their compatriots, and they wanted the very best stuff for the airmen in the, in the Air Force, and they had no, uh, no buy-in uh, with, uh, with the current uh, bureaucracy. And uh, they, you know, recognized from a pure point of view some of the things wrong with it. Uh, and they reached out to um, Techstars, which is, you know, the, the leading, uh, um, you know, entrepreneurial ecosystem uh, in the world, pretty much, with, uh, with an ask, which was, help us connect to the latest, greatest uh, startup companies that otherwise might not want to work with the Department of Defense or think that they can't, or it's it's too much uh, too much work to reach out and and uh, and 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 be our conduit, our mouthpiece, our entry point for for sucking all these startups in that have these latest greatest ideas and help us do business with them. And I thought that was a great original premise from the outset, uh, but then I kind of sat down with them and read them the riot act about why. Uh, companies like this don't typically work with the DOD. You know the the bureaucracy, the time, the the um, uh, you know the, the hundred page proposals that they don't hear back from for six months, uh, and how that just you know doesn't jibe with with the pace and the mode of operation of startup companies. I had I had attempted to convince companies over a ten year period teaching these classes at TechStars why they should enter this small business innovation research program, the SBR program. And I only had a, a 10% yield, uh, one out of 10 companies I tried to talk into. It's free, it was free money. I, I, I grew my entire company on this free money without ever going to a venture capitalist, yet I couldn't convince any more than one out of 10 companies in Techstars to, to go after it. And I, I had this list of barriers or reasons why they wouldn't. And, um, and these, uh, these four, you know, captains of the apocalypse, as they called them, called them at the time in the Air Force, they call them the four great captains now, but they used to call them the four captains of the apocalypse. Um, word. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I sat with them and I discussed this, you know, ad nauseum and I found that they were absolutely of the same mindset as I was, except they were inside the Air Force wearing uniforms and I was outside as, as a, an entrepreneur that just, I can't complain. I had a good exit. You know, I had a, had a great outcome for my company, but not, not what it could have or should have been uh, to the detriment of the, um, of the DOD and the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So they, they shared the same values. We had the same problem. 
I explained to them all the the issues and difficulties I was having with talking to anybody outside from working with the DOD. And they understood and immediately started crafting solutions to that problem, which came in the form of the brand new SBIR program, which really drastically um, removed all the barriers, changed the business model, made it much more uh, amenable to the startup community such that the, and Steve can go into more details, the, uh, the number of, of startup companies that had, have never done business with the DOD who are now working and applying to the SBIR program is 20 times what it used to be. It's a ridiculous smash you know, success uh, for AFWorks uh, and the Air Force. And uh, I think Steve can tell you a little more about it, but uh, it was such a disruptive change that, that now all of a sudden it's bleeding over into other parts of the DOD. And, it's amazing. And how many years are we talking about where we've got seen this 20X multiplier over just a few years, right? Two. Oh my God. It's Which is in DOD terms yeah. is, is yeah. I'm, I, I was in the acquisition reform business, if you will, for 20 years. Yeah. And I saw over the entire 20 year period, no such change, no such change that was dramatic. And this after two years, having such a, you know, absolutely disruptive, dramatic changes is shocking, kind yeah. of shocking. So Steve, let me ask you. So I look at your photo. You look like just a clean-cut all-American boy, okay? Clean-shaven, the, the very image of an Air Force officer. You don't look like an anarchist. And yet, yet, you created this extraordinary disruption where, as I understand it, this, this open-topic SBAR allows for a 30-day turnaround for up to $1.5 million. Is that, did I get that wrong? Yeah. How does that work? Tell me how that works. Yeah. So, yeah. So thanks. Thanks so much for being that. That's a really good question. Yeah. <clears throat> and I would say I'll zoom out very slightly before going to the nitty gritty, but yeah. as Warren mentioned, SBIR has been around for, for decades, I think since yeah. the eighties the and it's about $3 billion just under each year that has to be spent on small businesses doing innovative research, mm -hmm. right? And small businesses actually defined by the DOD or by the, S, the small business administration as 500 employees or less. So startups certainly qualify. In fact, some kind of medium-sized businesses too. Um, and Warren went through this program. It's been around for quite a while. Um, in 2018, we got the green light to do to use a small percentage of the overall budget for the Air Force um, to do a pilot program. And based on the experiences that we had all had, either as our own kind of private sector innovations that we tried our hands at, um, and some of the lessons learned through programs like the Air Force Accelerator, um, we had a pretty good idea of what startups investors really cared about and what challenges they perceived in working with us. And as part of this pilot, we were given the freedom to tweak some of the rules around it to make it more appealing to those high-performing startup founders. Um, and in brief, here's, like, here's the five big challenges that, that were the, the main barriers for these companies working with us. First, it was our timelines, right? If we took two years to get a small company on contract, that company might be dead in that time, many times over, right? They may have six months of runway. Um, the second was what we call requirements. So how we frame our problems for startup founders or other companies to come solve. We had a tendency to be very specific about what we wanted, uh, what we wanted um, as opposed to keeping it open so that anyone who had a great technology could come in and say, hey, you don't know you need this yet, but it turns out you really do, right? The third was access. I mentioned earlier, we have 685,000 people in the Air Force. So if, if I'm a startup founder with a cool piece of tech, where do I even start? And when you talk to someone, you know, it's important to know that within the Air Force, we're not just one career field. We've got all these different operational career fields, right? The people that are out there doing the work, whether it's maintainers or flying aircraft or security forces protecting the bases, 
but there's also the acquirers who are a different career field altogether who buy the solutions on behalf of the operators. There's the laboratories who are developing kind of the basic advanced and applied research um, to make the next generation of cool stuff, right? And there's all these other sub-players as well. And so it's very difficult to navigate. The fourth one is maybe the, bi- the biggest, and we'll focus on this throughout the call. And that's what we call transition, um, i.e., even if you come in the door and you get to show us your cool thing, and maybe you find it to the right, you find the right person within the Air Force who might want to buy it, it is difficult at times to go from validated prototype, i.e., we know we want this thing, to we've asked for money and we have the ability to absorb this new technology at scale, right? And so transition is when you take it over that, what we call the valley of death, and you actually field one of these technologies in a meaningful way. And that is what the startup founders care about. It's not about the R&D dollars. It's about us as a customer and AAR, wanting to see some kind of revenue coming from their work with us. All of those four lead to a fit, and that is sentiment. If you have a bad experience working with us, you're going to tell your friends and your investors and your family, and then that vicious cycle will continue. I'm really, really proud to say that through this program, um, I, we've seen that trend reverse in the last couple of years, and we have some of the best startup founders in the world coming to work with us. We have some of the best investors in the world pushing their companies to come to work with us because they perceive it as a good business case. So I'll pause there, but I'm happy to talk about some of the, the mechanics of it as well. It's a remarkable thing. So here's Warren, 20 years in his own startup, facing all of these challenges, and then 10 years of direct observation, seeing a one out of 10 hit rate amongst the Techstars founders who attend his sessions and, you know, go through with SBIR. Then he reads you, you know, the riot act, you know, come on in with your eyes wide open. This is, this is what you can expect given current conditions. And you then go and make all these changes before you solicit the first cohort. Is that right? To, to make this, you know, compelling well the uh you know the the, um techstars is is even at that time by by 2018 had run hundreds of accelerators around the world so uh you know when i was uh when 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 steve and uh the other uh four captains of the apocalypse were bringing me around the pentagon to to talk to generals and whatnot they they uh they asked me you know what's the biggest risk item here and there really was no risk in techstars running accelerator we've run hundreds of them before and ha- having a name brand like the Air Force would attract a lot of people in the aerospace uh, industry who, uh, startups in the aerospace industry who who thought that the cachet of the Air Force would be helpful. Um, it still didn't help that much uh, with the the funding problems that Steve was talking about. We did start this new pilot of the SBR program at the exact same time, but uh, we didn't really know how it would function. And, and uh, AFRX guys have been tweaking it also for the last two, two and a half years in order to uh, to adjust and fine tune as we're going. So two ex- essentially it was two parallel experiments started at the same time. There was a, so, but, th- but there was really no worry about uh, us attracting a, a viable cohort for the Techstars Accelerator. We know that sometimes it takes a little while to socialize the existence of the accelerator in the startup community, uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's going pretty well now. So it was um, uh, two experiments, that, both of which succeeded at the same time and reinforced each other because we provided the funnel of all these non-traditional companies and heavily advertised the SBAR program. And then at the same time, uh, uh, Steve and company were, were uh, continuously refining the SBAR program to be more and more amenable, comfortable, suitable, familiar, uh, did not require any of the startup companies to become defense contractors, didn't require them to get all the accountants and lawyers to do defense-related business um, any, any differently than, uh, at least uh, that's, that's the aspiration and it's doing pretty well 
on, on making sure that the company stays the same company, just has the Air Force and the DOD as one additional customer in the same company. All right, we'll explore that. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, um, now let's talk about what were the expectations and goals going into year one? What were some of the outcomes? What were some of the key learnings? Maybe some assumptions that weren't quite right. And then to the, the point that Warren just raised, the fact that you're able to completely shift the approach of these companies where it's more or less business as usual, right? You don't have to have a separate business unit or a completely separate business model, which is which certainly doesn't make VCs very happy. If you've got investors, they tend not to like that lack of focus. So obviously a very key part, but let's take a short break and we'll come back. This spot is reserved for you, our sponsors. If you'd like to be a part of the show and get your name to be associated with us and become a sponsor of a segment for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at I want in at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com or this is cool at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com. Thank you. All right. So now that we've gotten a very deep understanding of how this very unlikely partnership came to be and the remarkable amount of agility on both sides to ensure a very likely positive outcome to these experiments, now we actually deploy the cohort in year one and let the learning begin. So obviously a lot of people involved from the Air Force, a lot of different you know, organizations working in partnership with AFWorks as part of the ecosystem. Techstars, of course, brings in its extraordinary um, experience of running accelerators for a whole range of companies and industries around the world. What were the key expectations and goals that you both entered into year one with? What were you hoping to see come out of that first cohort? Um, I'll go, I'll go first, Steve. Um, uh, there, there really wasn't much of a risk from a tech stars side running yet one more kind of accelerator with a corporate partner. Uh, other corporate partners sometimes offered a proof of concept project funding and, and maybe additional follow on investment in the companies. Uh, the, the air force accelerator powered by tech stars is now uh, called, um, we had a slightly different uh, focus, or I, I had a slightly dis- different focus, and, and, and both Techstars and the Air Force let me run with it, which is uh, te- Techstars, unfortunately, sometimes is, is um, viewed as a finishing school for fundraising. Like the main goal out of the program is to raise your seed round, your A round, or whatever venture capital round you're at. There's so much of the program, of most of the Techstars programs are oriented around fundraising. That was a shift um, that I wanted to uh, implement in in our program, which is not to focus so much on fundraising, though Techstars has had this massive tool set for that exact purpose, but rather to focus on attempting to get these companies their first round of of capital non-dilutive from the Air Force uh, for, you know, the first, you know, one to three million dollars worth of investment. Uh, that's the, the, uh, the time where startup companies lose the most equity for the least amount of money. They could lose 25 to 33% of their company in a first uh, funding round like this for a pretty small amount of money and, and still require several more rounds of funding to, uh, to grow their business. By, by using the SBR funds to uh, replace this first tranche of uh, investment, it actually allows the company to, uh, to grow with a good customer and not, not give up any of their equity. So that was kind of the the major uh, first uh, you know ma- you know uh, 
substantial change uh, in the uh, in in our accelerator versus other tech stars accelerators. And then uh, sometimes it took a little while. Uh, we applied for for contracts. Not all the companies who win the first time out. Some of them had to raise money anyway. Um, but as the smoke clears, uh, as of today, I would say of the twenty companies that have gone through the first two classes, they've been awarded something in the twenty-one to twenty-three million dollar range in SBIRs. At the same time, I believe they've raised about fourteen or fifteen million in venture capital. So venture capital and angel investment uh, still plays a role. But if you think about the amount of equity those companies saved by getting that that twenty-one to twenty-three million dollars from the government, it was a substantial percentage of 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 all those companies. So so not not exclusively one way or the other, but we're essentially using this as uh, as a way to uh, advance the companies without giving up huge amounts of equity. Um, now on the the Air Force side, and I'll let Steve talk more about this. They had their own measures of success or effectiveness um, coming uh, for the TechStars program, which was a little out of character for for most corporate partners. And I'll I'll stop here and let Steve jump in and talk about their KPIs and and uh, measures of effectiveness. Yeah, of course, of course. So really, two things. One was we wanted to learn what we could about working with high performing companies in a way that didn't kill them. And I think Warren's foot stomped that a couple of times. Um, and in a way, we saw this as our entrance into the big leagues of the startup and venture world. Um, but out of the specific program, when we're measuring our, you know, what does success look like, we wanted to breed companies that were both commercially viable and operationally useful to the Air Force. So we have the scale of if a company comes out and they're doing well commercially and they've found a customer within the Air Force and they're able to work with them, that is the biggest win. So we wanted to get as many of those as we could. But interestingly enough, it was okay if a commercial success came out of it and they hadn't quite yet found their Air Force customer because now we're on their radar and they're on our radar. And I think that that we talked about sentiment, right? Their experience of being accelerated in a way um, you know, by working with the Air Force that didn't hurt their company um, is going to spread in a positive way. So that, that's kind of what we look for. What uh, an enlightened part. perspective that is. <laughs> They're not beholden just to the U.S. Air Force. You want them to be commercially viable in a more broad sense. So, yeah, so I mean, security and prosperity, right? There's yeah. this idea that, you know, the strengths of our companies and our economy are also going to be what helps us to survive if there ever is a conflict. So that matters too. All right. So since you guys have already broken pretty much every rule there is, let's now go to what yet another rule. The fact that you're taking a very global perspective, that this is not, you know, built for only U.S. companies. You, you want to benefit from the collective wisdom and insight and innovation capacity of any company anywhere in the world. And this is, of course, pretty unorthodox as well. So take me through how, you know, how that thinking evolved and, and how that's worked. Well, from, from a Techstars perspective, Techstars runs accelerators all over the world. So it was quite natural for Techstars. Tech, every Techstars program recruits from all over the world. Um, it would be highly unusual if the Air Force Accelerator did not also recruit from the rest of the world. From a, a high level concept uh, perspective, if the very, very best idea that could keep America safe, that could add to our collective defense, was found in a foreign country, why wouldn't we try to, to engage them, bring them over here, whether it's, you know, uh, move the company to the United States or just simply bring them into our sphere of influence so that uh, they, would, they would aid us as opposed to our adversaries, why wouldn't we do that? that it's, it seems, you know, nonsensical to, to uh, to um, reject or repulse any any uh, possible technology or innovation that could help us 
succeed. Right. Now, it's nonsensical to rational minds, but I know <laughs> as a guy that's been a mentor for many, many years all around the world, I've, I've, I've certainly seen challenges and friction with companies, even from Canada, that have had some, you know, 100,000x improvements over existing innovations and were, you know, given the stiff arm. So it, it, clearly there's absolutely agree that it makes all kinds of sense. And it's, it's certainly, um, you know, it'd be crazy not to go any other way, but it, it's not, uh, it's not something that's been accepted for a long period of time. Right. So this is somewhat new, I think within, within the military, at least. So, you know, yeah. I, I also, you know, Techstars yeah. also had an easier time because, yeah. you know, our modus operandi is to do that. Now getting them funding from the U S air force for their invention or their innovation, that was a different story that wasn't as as easy and still isn't as easy as it perhaps should be, but bringing them into, into the accelerator was not any harder than what, what we, we usually do. That's great. And Steve, from your perspective, was there always this belief that it would be an ecosystem that would be global in nature? Was there ever any doubt about that from your perspective or any pushback on that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think at least from a top of the funnel perspective, yes, right? There's no risk to just looking to see what's out there and even to have them come to us and just and see, right? Have the conversation. Obviously, we don't drill down deep into anything that would be sensitive or classified or anything. If it gets to a point that a company, regardless of wherever they, they come from, is useful to a certain mission set, that's when those deeper conversations can be made. Now, I will say it, it hasn't always been easy. You know, there's been a few, um, you mentioned Canada, there's been a few Canadian companies that, that came through the program. And even them, they had to go through more hoops. Um, but so far, it looks like it is bearing fruit. It's just taken a little bit longer. Um, the last thing I'll say that is this is kind of a, a learning experience on both sides. So as we hit these barriers, we can make the assessment. Do we remove this barrier? Is it there for a reason? Or is there some other kind of better way to approach it? Okay. So if you look back now at year one, what would you say was the thing each of you are most proud of after the first full year of operation from each of your perspectives? Um, okay, I'll go first. Uh, so the, the year one, uh, the first thing that I'm most proud of is, is 10 out of 10 of my companies are still in business. Not, not, zero of them have gone out of business. Uh, Techstar's track record um, uh, overall is quite good. I think we, we advertise that uh, 86% of all companies that have gone through Techstar's are either still in business or have been acquired, and only 14% have failed, which is an astonishingly high uh, um, metric for startup companies. Right now, I'm I'm running uh, 100%. Uh, zero of my companies uh, in the in the first two classes and, and even the third class that just started just started. So one would tend to think they'd all be still be in business, but but uh, 30 out of 30 are still in business. So I'm extremely proud of that. Um, so that's number one. Uh, I'm also very proud of the fact that they have collectively won twenty one two three million dollars worth of of DoD contracts. Uh, I'm also incredibly proud of, uh, of one of the companies uh, from my um, my second cohort, a company called Vita Inclinata, that's now wending its way through uh, this valley of death with um, with uh, Afwerks, uh, you know, um, uh, new attempt to uh, to create a variant of the SBAR that can get companies with great products, uh, actual to actual production and deployment with warfighters faster than the, than the old system. So I do have a company that's, uh, that's now, uh, attempting to leap this, uh, chasm and, uh, and deliver product to the warfighter. And it's such an extraordinary story. We're going to come back and dig in deeply because this is an incredibly inspirational story, but Steve, from your perspective, so I, I loved Warren's response, a hundred percent 
success rate, um, you know, significant amount of SBIR, SBIR non-dilutive funding um, that was secured, and and a couple of just absolute breakout successes. So you know, not a, not a bad start if you're going to have a starting point, given that you're running these dual experiments and you're you're breaking all kinds of cultural barriers everywhere. Um, it's rather a remarkable story. So from your point of view, as as one of the and I and I know that. Uh, I love, uh, Warren clearly loves this phrase, the four captains, as one of the four captains of the apocalypse, um, the positive, in, in the most positive light, the apocalypse in the most positive light, obviously. Um, what are you most proud of? Because you obviously were one of the guys that, you know, drove this program that had the vision to solicit Techstars as a partner, to respond to a lot of the obstacles that Warren had laid out needed to be addressed before you could really recruit the kind of quality companies that you wanted to. So I can only imagine the amount of time and energy that you and the team put in. And now you've got this big public experiment happening and all of your colleagues around the Air Force are looking at you um, and uh, you deliver. So what what coming out of that first year would you say was, you know, what makes you smile, makes you feel great? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think... I think two things. So so one of them is I'm proud of the Air Force. And that sounds really cheesy, right? But I think in any large organization, it's really hard. Um, what's a good way to put this? In any big organization, it's really understandable that we have this, but there's not really an incentive to take risk when the upside is really difficult to articulate, right? So something that could be a risk down the line that we need to address now, as opposed to something that's like an imminent threat is really difficult to contemplate and actually shift resources towards a new way of doing business to solve. And so in those cases, it takes, I think, a really strong alignment of leadership to allow for this against the grain thing to happen. And so when we were coming up and proposing this concept of an accelerator in the Air Force, there was a ton of both tactical and operational challenges to overcome, you know, finding the money for it, getting the people assigned to it, um, kind of overcoming some of the legal hurdles to how do you work with organizations that are seeking venture funding and what is the perception around that. Um, but there was a number of points at which some of the very top leadership uh, in the Air Force rallied behind this concept to defend it and, and ultimately bring it to bear. So I think the existence of the program uh, and the fact that it's on its third, third year now and, and didn't die on the vine is a really big indicator of where the Air Force is at in terms of trying new things, taking risks to solve these big problems that are a little bit fuzzier. Right, you know, maintaining our technological edge over the next several decades starts today. So that's one. But a little bit more concrete. I didn't think of this until I heard your answer, Warren. But um, we do have this, you know, the Small Business Innovative Research Program, this open topic, which is, I mean, it's, it's over half a billion a year at this point under this new process. Over a thousand companies a year. But in phase one of this program, these companies are, are cut loose to try to find their Air Force customer, find someone in the Air Force who says, "I really want your thing," and then they can go on and progress through the different stages of the program, unlock more funding. But the thing that makes me smile is that some of the graduates from the Air Force Accelerator um, went through this, this SBIR phase one that I just mentioned. And those groups, they are big, right? So there are about 300 or so companies per cohort, um, but they tend to be their own ecosystem and community. And certain leaders tend to rise within those ecosystems. And what I've noticed is some of the Accelerator alumni really became the thought leaders and, and the assemblers of I think a thriving ecosystem within that. So it was it was cool to see that. Very cool. And and what about I know as as a guy that's been an entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial energy is infectious. And how how has you know you had described to me as we were prepping that you've got a lot of people that are serving in these voluntary roles as connectors, right? And they're making sure that 
you know, they understand where there are needs and gaps and problems, and they have the ability to create a, a, a worthwhile connection between one of these cohort members and a problem and maybe multiple units, right? So how has the inspirational energy of the entrepreneurial ecosystem that's been created affected the broader community, the broader ecosystem? Oh, yeah. It's, so you can look at it from two sides, right? Both internal to the Air Force and then external. Um, on the internal side, you know, again, there's certain people who I think are really leading the way here. I mentioned the Tony Perez running the SPARK program. We are seeing this energy throughout the Air Force of people, you know, maybe it's part generational. You have the, the millennials and younger who are starting to come up and who have, for better or worse, are challenging norms and, and are, you know, trying to disrupt the systems in which they're, they're raised. Um, but people are excited about making a difference. A buddy of mine, Joey Aurora, who's also on the team, he said that it is not the Air, Air Force that we joined, it's the Air Force that we build. And that concept is really catching on like wildfire. So I'm very wow. excited about that. But externally, too, we are seeing a real excitement. Uh, and just the metrics are supporting this assumption um, around the idea of working with the Air Force. So for these, you know, whether it's the Accelerator or the SBIR program, the numbers have increased every round to a very substantial amount, which I can't mention the numbers right now. But the interest is absolutely there. And just the quality and the number of companies that are coming to try to see hey, is the Air Force a potential customer for my solution, um, is, has been staggering. So you're building a virtuous cycle here. Absolutely. That's right. That's great. So we're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap up by asking um, Warren to tell us a little bit more about Vita Inclinata and maybe another uh, you know, real success story coming out of the first couple of cohorts. And then from both of you, your vision for where we go from here, right? You've, you've had an incredibly productive first two years, a lot of success, a lot of amazing breakthrough changes to allow that success. But, you know, where do you go from here? How do you scale this? And then how do you, and, and I know that we'll talk a little bit about, there's already interest in other branches, but you know, how, how will that play itself out? So let's, let's take a couple of minutes and we'll come back and we'll finish up. If you're enjoying this session and any of the previous episodes, find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating at the end, please. Your support is what keeps us in your ears every week. Thank you. All right, so we're back, and this is where I want to first start going back with Warren. Warren had very briefly spoken about one particularly interesting company, and this is a remarkable story, Warren. So would you tell us all about Vita Inclinata? Sure. So um, Vita Inclinata is a company from my 2019 class, so just last year. Uh, two founders, uh, Caleb Carr and Der Derek Sikora. Uh, Caleb had been um, a helicopter rescue volunteer uh, who unfortunately had to leave uh, a colleague on the mountain to, to die because the helicopter uh, hoist basket couldn't, um, couldn't uh, stably reach the, reach the ground and they couldn't safely put uh, this victim on, top, on, the, on the litter and, and pull it back up into the helicopter. And the, the problem, which has been around for, since the beginning of helicopters for about 75 years, is that the, uh, the rotor wash and the downdraft uh, causes the basket or the load underneath a, a hoist line to swing around violently, bash into things, spin around. And, uh, and you should see the videos of, of, uh, of crew chiefs in the helicopter trying to uh, kick the, the hoist line with their feet, trying to get it on top of the ship or get it in, in between the trees or into a building and the thing spinning and bashing around. And it turns out that 24 people a day in the world are killed or injured by helicopter hoist line instability. 
And you would think that somebody would have come up with a solution to this problem, but, but nobody did. And, uh, uh, Caleb and Derek and, and uh, you know, in the basement of the house came up with this uh, drone-like device, which clips onto the bottom of a hoist line or a sling load line on a helicopter. And it simply resists the swinging and spinning motions, has little thrusters on it. And uh, it works. And they've they prototyped it and patented it and uh, started testing it. And uh, I, I discovered them about a year and a half ago uh, when they were applying to my program. Uh, help them through uh, some of these newer SBIRs, and uh, they've uh, become uh, widely uh, known throughout the DoD. They're starting to collect uh, orders for uh, for large quantities of these uh, of these devices. Uh, and there's no way that the regular requirements process in the Department of Defense would have discovered this and produced this. And even today, uh, with the idea known and the prototype sitting there, it would still take you know five to ten years for the the current acquisition process to to uh, come up with uh, with a device that would be you know it wouldn't even be the same price it would be ten times the price as what uh, the Vita guys are selling it for so they're they're now in the process of uh, of uh, of uh, going through this valley of death and going from the the small bucks SBIR you know R and D budget money which is just you know single digit millions of dollars to very large uh, orders that they're taking in, in the hopes of uh, starting to deliver to the department very soon. So this is a uh, a textbook case, in my opinion, of um, early scouting discovery of little startup out of, in, a, in obscurity, uh, you know, putting them front and center in front of the Air Force in this uh, high profile uh, R&D program, and then uh, starting to, you know, collect the orders and, and, and get them into the hands of warfighters, you know, a decade faster than it might have otherwise been. So very yeah. proud of this particular one. It's amazing. So so the fact that this problem has existed for 75 years is stunning. It is. But obviously the personal motivation, right, which which is often the case of an entrepreneur, right, that it's something that they can't not do, right? They, they see it and they say, if no one else does it, I can't accept that. I'm going to do it. But these are university students. Yep. Right. And now the founder is a Forbes 30 under 30. So when I post this podcast, I will share the link so that you can see for your own eyes and hear with your own ears this incredible story directly from the founder. But to me, this is exactly why open innovation matters, right? And you just don't know what's out there until you cast that net. That has to be wide. It's like yeah. prim primordial soup. You can't, as Steve said earlier, the Air Force was usually pretty, uh, they, they descended into this habit of being very, very specific, too specific about exactly what they want and need, which led to simple, mild evolutionary improvements over time. Uh, the new, you know, AFWERKS, um, SBARs and the Accelerator um, conspire to simply open the funnel as wide as possible. And literally the, the call for topics now is any idea at all you think might be of interest to the U.S. Air Force. And all kinds of stuff are, is coming out of the woodworks that, that, that the Air Force itself, if left to its own requirements process would never have come up with. Right. So on that note, right, I know that I had the opportunity to get to know one of your cohort members from uh, a year ago. Uh, you know, the co-founders, one from London or England, one from Poland. I know you've got a couple of folks in the program right now from Singapore. Talk about all the different countries that have been represented over the, the 30 cohort members that you've had, just if you could. Oh, absolutely. So uh, first year I had a company from Portugal, we have with a uh, Graphinest that uh, has a fantastic uh, new manufacturing technology for low cost, high quality graphene, 
and graphene is in use in composite materials and electromagnetic shielding. It's this wonder material, but it had heretofore been, um, you know, incredibly expensive to produce. So they were uh, sort of the first test case of an international uh, company going through um, going through the cohort. And they, of course, they made it through Techstars. I got all the benefits of Techstars. But we're still working on how to get them large quantities of sale of, of, of their graphene products into, into the DOD. Uh, second year, we had uh, three Canadian companies, uh, you know, fantastic uh, companies. One, uh, um, Clio Robotics. Uh, they, they've since relocated to Boston. They make uh, an unbelievable little drone called the Dronut, which uh, looks like a hockey puck, looks like a big donut essentially, but it's uh, a safe drone to fly indoors. It can bump into people. You can grab it out of, this, out of the air with your bare hand. Uh, it can fly down pipes and ductwork, and you can throw it through a window. Um, very, very uh, uh, unusual new uh, concept in drones. Canadian company, um, they're now uh, working to close a couple of deals with the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, flight materials, amazing uh, technology for uh, uh, surface treating any solid surface, pretty much any solid surface to make it naturally super hydrophobic. So water cannot uh, wet on the surface. And this is for uh, de-icing of airplanes and, and, um, and, and anti-corrosion, uh, that kind of thing. It's not, it's not a coating or a paint. It's, uh, it's merely a, um, a treatment, a laser treatment, so it can't rub off. Okay, so, is, so you don't have to de-ice a plane anymore if you it, treat it. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. You treat, you treat wow. the outside of an airplane with this, never have to spray it with the icing material ever again. Ice cannot freeze and cling on the surface. And then another fabulous company uh, uh, from Canada, Airshare, that makes, uh, they call it the world's friendliest missile. It's a little counter drone missile, a 3D printed uh, with model rocket motors, but it has an artificially intelligent seeker head that um, can track down a, a wayward drone. And instead of uh, uh, destroying the drone, uh, it shoots out this cloud of what I call latex linguini, which uh, is this cloud of like rubber bands or chaff, and it clogs up uh, the rotors of the offending drone. And then with a parachute, brings the whole thing to the ground without destroying anything, which is amazing. And their price point is vastly lower than anything the U.S. Department of Defense has, and they work. Uh, so now they're being uh, brought into the Air Force's most prestigious testing environments to test this out as the sort of the, the low end, last mile protection for for air bases and convoys and things like that. Uh, for with these uh, these tiny little, you know, they're about eighteen inches long. These little plastic missiles, which is which is awesome. So that was um, Canada. Yeah. So that was Canada, and then I also had uh, a team from uh, half Poland and half UK because the company was incorporated in the UK. Uh, edge-based data analytics company, a little less glamorous, but uh, for anybody who uh, would like to do uh, large amounts of processing of data, they have a, a time series database. Uh, company's called SliceUp, time series database uh, that uh, is uh, intended to run on edge devices as opposed to the cloud. So you can filter out all of the uh, uh, data before it ever gets to the cloud, massively reducing the amount of bandwidth you need. Uh, everybody's pushing every all processing to the edge for that very reason. You can't rely on the internet being there. can't rely on connectivity. Don't know what bandwidth you have. Don't have the time to do processing in the cloud. You have to do it on the edge. So that was uh, my 2019 class. Um, in 2020, uh, I have two companies from Singapore. Uh, one is an augmented reality company, uh, Spiral Technologies. Uh, the, they make a, a helmet mount display, uh, uh, augmented reality vision system that helps uh, 
um, so helps technicians uh, lead them through a repair operation, check the correctness of the repair in case the technician misses something, forgets something. Uh, the other company, a company called Loretta.io, Loretta.io is also from, also from Singapore, and they make an edge-based AI vision processing system that takes camera footage and determines whether an event of interest or a, an object of interest or a person of interest is, is in the scene. So rather than streaming back rivers of, of video to a cloud server somewhere, you can simply decide whether something is interesting going on in the scene before you send it back to the cloud, which is, of course, where all you know, vision systems and AI is going to go. It's all going to be run on the camera itself or on, on edge-based local systems. So we're in the process of, uh, of helping them figure out exactly how to get U.S. Air Force funding to deploy their products as well. So, yes, yeah. I had, um, what was that, one, two, three, four, that five, was, six, seven. Yeah. Seven foreign companies out of the 30. Yeah, including Asia, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. So, okay, so here we are. We've got this well beyond an experiment now. We're, we're very stable. We're in year three. We're attracting, you know, a higher level, higher number of high quality organizations. We're building a lot of, you know, positive reinforcement in the ecosystem. So it seems to me like there's an opportunity to do something just absolutely transformative here. And not surprisingly, um, you folks have captured the attention outside of just the Air Force. So talk about, if you could, you know, what, what the, uh, the next step is here across military branches. Sounds like there's something about to happen, maybe an experiment that's about to happen here. Steve, can you illuminate? Yeah, of course. Of course. So this is actually in the works right now. Uh, and so the Air Force has been running this experiment for some time, now, both with the Accelerator and with this Small Business Innovative Research Program. Um, but on February 12th, we had applications closed for one of these, you know, large SBIR cohorts for the open topic. And it wasn't just Air Force. It was actually Army, Navy, uh, the National Geospatial uh, Agency. Um, and ENSIN, which is the National Security Innovation Network. So it is inherently joint for this phase one. So it is becoming, in a sense, this front door for anyone who has a technology that might be useful to any one of those players I just mentioned to come in and try their hand at working with us. And so the, the area for growth, I think, is scale. We've tested this out. We've fixed a lot of the mistakes. We make a ton of mistakes along the way, but we did it small first. And as I mentioned, we're at over half a billion dollars a year now, over a thousand companies every year going through phase one, finding their or their customers throughout the whole DOD now. Um, and I do briefly want to mention that phase one is just find your customer. Phase two is up to $1.5 million awarded in 45 to 60 days to actually do a trial with that customer. We are paying them to say, okay, you say, you know, you talk a big game. This does sound very interesting. If you can deliver, that is interesting to me. And then we pay for them to deliver. And after that trial, this is truly phenomenal. The, the big, so what at the end, the whole transition conversation we already have is there's the opportunity for what we call the phase two strategic. And that is a very large award. Uh, we're talking $6 million plus. Um, with uh, no notional ceiling, but it can be very large, and every one we take at a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and the idea here is, you, yep, you found your customer who's interested, you've shown them that you can actually deliver, and you've proved out some of the ways that you might work together, and now it's time to scale and really take this solution across the valley of death into a major Air Force or DOD program in a way that is sustained. And so this is, uh, this is no longer just Air Force, it is joint, and there are real opportunities to come and work with us. We've had five unicorns go through uh, at this point. I won't mention them here, but our portfolio has grown to some very significant players who are doing great. Um, and I think that number is going to keep getting better. So, Steve, let me ask you now, um, as a guy that's a former McKinsey consultant and a corporate innovation consultant, 
the the challenges of innovating, even with a, within a traditional for-profit company, are immense. And very few companies do that successfully. What insights, what secrets, what tips would you share with your brethren outside the military that are trying to drive change and innovation in their organizations, right? Because what, what I've heard just now is a remarkable story of transforming something that, as Warren said, spent, spent 20 years, you know, and although there was a lot of people that agreed there was a problem, no one had the ability to solve the problem. And here these four captains of the apocalypse come in and God knows what you did, but help just a couple of tips. What, what, you know, what is it that you feel like contributed to the success of, of where we are right now from your own perspective? Yeah, of course. Of course. I think that's a great question. So um, a big part of this is driven by leadership, right? Many large organizations, the incentive structures are aligned in such a way that you maintain the status quo, right? If you take too big of a risk, then you can hurt the existing business line. And that makes sense. It makes sense of that is, you know, I love the quote that's show me incentives and I'll show you outcomes or I'll show you behavior. I think that's absolutely what we see. But if you have a strong leader who says, look, I know that some percentage, you know, pick the target, some percentage of these projects will fail and that's okay. And don't just say it, but actually celebrate the failures, right? Prop up those who are taking risks, regardless of the outcome. You can start to engender this culture that, that has people actually trying these new and riskier things, right? So that's a big piece of it. You also have to give people time and resources. You know, I mentioned in the beginning that Afworks is an experiment of experiments. Um, and so give some kind of structure within your large organization such that those entrepreneurs who have a big idea can have the time and space to go try it. And I think there's a number of organizations that do this well, but it's not easy. So that's a big piece, right? Back up your innovators and give them the space to innovate it. And then for those actual entrepreneurs, right, a piece of advice for them would be, uh, you know, you are a startup within your organization. You will fail many, many times along the way. And one of the ways that you sustain through that failure is having one or two or maybe more, but I think at least a couple of folks that you're really close with and you're going through it together. Because in every one of those times when we failed, there was at least one of us who maintained like this positive, we're going to make it work attitude. And that kept us going. Cool. And Warren, from your perspective, as you said, right, Techstars has has grown to be the single largest entrepreneurial ecosystem in the world, right? Running well over 50 programs, many of them for world-class companies like Disney and Nike and Amazon and Microsoft and Barclays Bank, right? And yet this program has had such success. What can Techstars, other programs learn from this program? What, what insights do you think would benefit some of the other accelerators and, and be able to achieve the kind of success that you've had in such a short period of time? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, I'll give a shout out now to uh, my our other sponsors, BAE Systems, Fast Labs. Um, they, they've been a, a great partner in that they uh, come to realize that they don't need to own and control the companies that go through the accelerator. They just need to partner with them. And they're delighted to get an early look. And from the from the DoD ecosystem standpoint, uh, sometimes the large primes realize that they kill everything they touch. So it's probably smarter to let the thing flourish outside of themselves as opposed to trying to, to, uh, to control it and own it and, and keep it from other people. Uh, they, they find that their advantage is merely in, in uh, having an early look. They, they get a sneak peek. They help, help me uh, do my down select. They get a very, very early look at all these companies. They see what's going on on the, 
on the horizon with all the startup community. And then they uh, simply add fertilizer to these companies as, as, as opposed to trying to, you know, drag them into their dark room. So I'd say, I'd say one of the things, and, and maybe this is unique to the defense industry, probably not, but uh, uh, keeping an open mind about uh, letting uh, startups flourish themselves and not trying to control them, torture them, strangle them, turn them into something they're not, uh, force another business model on them. That, in my opinion, is one of the uh, most valuable lessons that that any uh, large corporate entity can can learn from this is don't don't try to own and control everything and and uh, and bring it to heel and make it look like you. Don't try to make it look like you. That's great. Make it look like what it's gonna gonna be and just just let it grow. I love it. All right, so here we sit on President's Day in Boston, 2020. And as a guy that studied mechanical and aerospace engineering and who during the Cold War interviewed with many large defense contractors, but was turned off because of the hangar-like facilities with the sea of battered sheet metal desks with hundreds and hundreds of engineers, I couldn't get to Silicon Valley fast enough. Um, and yet, as I sit here today, I am so inspired by what you two gentlemen, and of course the teams behind you have done, but you are the, you know, representing these, these organizations as, as leaders, um, as an American citizen and as an innovation enthusiast. It's a remarkably um, inspirational story. And I'm so pleased that we had the chance for the both of you to share this story with my global listeners. And for all of you entrepreneurs out there that um, might never have considered becoming a supplier to the United States military, to the United States Air Force. I think you've just heard um, very inspirational stories as to why you should consider doing that. Um, I've been a mentor in Techstars since it came into Boston in 2009. Um, I can't say enough about the organization and about its programs and, and the way that it stands for entrepreneurs. And I, I would encourage all of you to think real hard. And I will be posting this um, with a number of links that will give you more insight that will back up some of our discussion. Warren Katz, Steve Lauver, thank you both so much for sharing your uh, your evening with me tonight. Thanks a lot, Mike. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it.